Welcome to another podcast from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. My name is Raj Basord and I'm a consultant psychiatrist based at the Bethlehem Royal and Morsey Hospitals in South London. Joining me today is Daniel Freeman, who is a Wellcome Trust Fellow at the Institute of Psychiatry, which is part of King's College London. With some co-authors, he's published a fascinating paper in the April edition of the British Journal of Psychiatry, and the title of the paper is Virtual Reality Study of Paranoid Thinking in the General Population. So Daniel, let me start by asking you, what are you referring to with the term paranoid thinking? Well, arguably, uh, paranoia is the 21st century fear. It's an uh, exaggerated or uh, unfounded idea that others are deliberately trying to harm you in some way. So people might think others are deliberately trying to irritate them or upset them or distress them or spread rumours. It's a conspiracy. Or even to physically harm someone. So a whole range of physical, psychological uh, or social threat. Why is paranoid thinking so important within psychiatry and psychology? Well, there's a spectrum of paranoia. And what there is, is there's everyday suspiciousness that people often have and can easily dismiss. But at the extreme end of the spectrum are persecutory delusions, which are a central symptom of psychotic disorders such as schizophrenia. So it's a key marker... Of, of being really quite unwell, perhaps, at, uh, uh, given there's a spectrum. Though. At one end of the spectrum, you can be really rather unwell with this. I think that the experience itself is incredibly important. I think it's rather like anxiety, uh, where many of us have a few symptoms and some of us have very severe symptoms. And persecutory ideas can be very upsetting and distressing for people. And um, they feel very frightened and want to seek some help for that. Now let's talk about this actual study that you've done here. It, it, the, the other key word in the title is virtual reality. Tell us about the virtual reality bit of the study. Well, what the key thing is for paranoia is that these thoughts don't arise out of the blue. Uh, there are often attempts to make sense of social interactions. So, for example, a look on someone's face. Now, a look on someone's face could mean they're being hostile towards us, but it might mean that they, well, they might even be thinking of us, they might be thinking of something else. So what would be ideal is to give everyone exactly the same neutral social situation and see who had a paranoid judgment about it. But of course, the problem is you can't give everyone the same neutral social situation or the same social situation. And in fact, people who are paranoid often act rather differently, differently in social situations and elicit different reactions. So the solution that we used to give people exactly the social, same social event was virtual reality. Now, virtual reality is a computer-generated interactive environment. Um, There are basically three elements of virtual reality. There's a computer generating the world. There's a headset to show the person the computer images. And then their movements are tracked to feed back the computer uh, to change the, the nature of the image. And basically what it does is substitute sense data from the real world with sense data about this imaginary world. And these virtual reality environments can be very realistic. I mean, I've experienced them myself. I experienced um, a virtual Iraq, um, which which was uh, replicating what it's like to walk through a street in Baghdad, for example. So that that one can feel, and I think the term is uh, totally immersed, and feel an immersion experience in these environments. You're absolutely right. Immersed is the term. I became first interested in this because... um, I was amazed by the results that they had for treating phobias. Um, So, for example, virtual reality was used to treat height phobias. 
And the treatment is for a phobia is to expose yourself to the feared situation. And clinicians were getting the same results whether they used real heights or these virtual heights. Now, people know it's artificial. They're fully aware of that. But it just triggers the normal uh, automatic responses as if it was a real world. They feel immersed, as exactly as you put it. Now, tell us about the actual study. What was the methodology in this study? We recruited a representative um, sample of the general population, 200 people. And what we did is we um, gave them a thorough psychological assessment for about 90 minutes. And then they just spent four minutes in a virtual train ride. And this train ride was deliberately very neutral. Um, it was populated by a crowd of computer characters called avatars, and, and they would pretty much stick to their own business. They occasionally look around, and if they got looked at a lot, they might look up at the person. But it was a fairly neutral social situation. But everyone spent the same four minutes on this train journey. And then afterwards, we assess their experience of the train. And what were your findings? Well, what we found is this striking divergence in views of the uh, computer characters, of the avatars. For most people, it was a neutral experience. So someone said, well, it felt like a normal tube. There were people just trying to get where they wanted to go. Um, other people thought it was quite positive. So some people said, well, it was generally very friendly. And, and, and then some one person said, one guy was checking me out. It was flattering. But a significant minority of people had a much more negative experience. And some had paranoid thoughts. For example, someone said, there was a man who tried to stare me out, but I didn't give him any ammunition, but I think his intention was to start an argument. Another person said, I thought a couple of the men were stuck up and nasty. There was a lady sitting down, and she laughed at me when I walked past. So what we found is that exactly the same event was interpreted very differently. So it's a bit like going to see a, a film with a friend or something, and you come out thinking, that was a fantastic film, that was one of the best films I've ever seen, but your friend has a completely different reaction to this film and says, that was awful. And this is exactly what we found with this... Uh, neutral social situation, different interpretations, but importantly, a significant portion of the general public, and this was people without uh, psychosis or schizophrenia, uh, a significant proportion had paranoid thoughts. When you say a significant proportion, could you give us a sense of what proportion you're talking about? About one in three seem to have significant paranoid thoughts. That seems a startlingly high figure. It's a high figure if you view it from a very traditional psychiatric view, because in that view, paranoid thoughts are confined to those with serious mental illness. But this very unambiguously shows that many people in the general public have them. And that's really probably not surprising, because I think underlying all social interactions is a decision to trust or mistrust. But it's a difficult decision to make, and therefore it's error-prone. Is it possible um, that, in fact, this figure is an underestimate? Because I'm thinking about the, the, the sort of um, demand characteristics of the experiment, which is that it may be people are more likely to consider they were feeling paranoid but not want to report it because there could be consequences for that. So is it possible this is actually an underestimation as a result of that effect? Well, I think it's certainly plausible that more than one in three of us have paranoid thoughts pass through our mind from time to time. And that's because paranoid thoughts uh, can be very sensible to have in some situations. We do need to be wary of other people in, in, in certain environments. That makes sense. Um, and it's, again, a bit like anxiety. At times, it's right to be wary of heights. Um, but what we're probably picking up here in this one and three are people who are regularly bothered by such thoughts. What do you think are the implications of your paper? Well, I think one is that um, we need to move away from a view of paranoia as just occurring in people with severe mental illness. Um, it looks like there's a spectrum of paranoia um, that many people are on. 
Um, but there were also additional findings. We didn't just show unambiguously that people have paranoid thoughts. We looked at some of the predictors. What are the characteristics of people who got paranoid? And some of the factors we found were important were if people were anxious, um, if they were warriors, if they tended to catastrophize about events, if they ruminated about bad outcomes, um, also if they had low self-esteem, also if they had a tendency to experience perceptual anomalies, for example, things appearing too bright or vivid or sounds too loud and intrusive, and also if they tended to have um, what we call cognitive inflexibility, uh, tending not to think through different explanation for events. So there's a range of psychological factors that make people more vulnerable to having paranoid thoughts. But perhaps most crucially, many of these factors are associated with emotion and anxiety. It looks like paranoia uh, is a type of fear. You may sound as though, and perhaps has been a slightly unfair interpretation of your comment, that if, if one in three have paranoid thoughts, that this is somehow, in a way, a bad thing. But you, you're also saying that it might be appropriate to have paranoid thoughts in certain environments. So in a way, the issue isn't the fact they were paranoid. The issue is, is it appropriate to be paranoid on a train journey? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's right. It's, well, it's, it's an issue about whether sometimes it gets exaggerated or if there's not enough evidence for it. And also there are issues about how much you believe a thought how much you think about it and how much you act upon it and how much you're distressed by it. Um, there's clearly a continuum. And in some circumstances, having paranoid thoughts uh, is, is a realistic and appropriate strategy to have. But it's when it becomes exaggerated, unfounded and distressing, then it can be a problem. So, for example, and this is probably an extreme analogy, if uh, some of your sample had some profoundly negative experiences of train journeys in the past, where they'd been attacked, let's say, and that was their history, then in a way you could explain the fact that they had these paranoid thoughts compared to the other part of the population that didn't by their actual experience. So your study is highlighting these things are very common, but we're at the beginning to try to understand where paranoid thoughts come from. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. It's likely that you'll be more paranoid if you've had bad things happen to you in the past. Um, so, you know, I think many people have experienced being mugged, for example. Uh, in the period after that, you're much more alert and sensitive and suspicious of other people. It does tend to die down over time, though, to become uh, back to more realistic levels of suspiciousness. But it's when it stays high that it can be a bit more of a problem. Because on the whole, you tend to be safe in trains... Um, and certainly in the train environment we gave where there were plenty of other people and it was you know, at a safe time of day. Now, virtual reality, in terms of if you, if you do a literature search in, in, the, in the literature, it's still a very, very new phenomenon in, in research studies being deployed as a, as a methodology. I want to ask you a little bit about what your thoughts are about its future and your experience using it. Do you find when you submit papers using this virtual reality technology, you get a certain amount of scepticism from, from your viewers? And, and what are your thoughts about the future for it as a methodology? We haven't had any scepticism from reviewers, I think, because it's, it's been used very successfully for anxiety disorder. And there's a strong literature showing that reactions in VR very much mirror reactions in the real world. So I think that's, that's very helpful. Um, I think in terms of the future of virtuality, I think it has potential to be used to assess uh, symptoms in the clinic at the moment. If we assess symptoms, we sit in a bare room with someone talking about recall over the past month, where this could be an assessment of paranoid thoughts in the laboratory. It could be very important for that. Um, but I think that's probably a way off. At the moment, it's more likely to be used in studies like that, this, where we try and learn about the causes, the predictors of paranoid thoughts. 
but we could also use it to determine whether some factors have a causal role. We could um, manipulate some of the factors we think are important, reduce anxiety or, or, or reduce worry, for example, and see if that affects paranoia. And I think in the longer term, it also could dovetail very nicely with the emerging CBT interventions for paranoia. So we could use uh, virtual reality to present some of the scenarios people fear, expose them to that. They could learn to test out their fears, and they could also practice coping with paranoid thoughts in social situations. Daniel, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.